We are in Zechariah 12, verses 10 through 14. The Lord said, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself, and by their wives by themselves and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. I'm always amazed at how much we have become creatures of comfort. I don't think I've had more dialogue about heat and the weather as I have in the past few days. Um, And I I know it's hot. Um, Praise God for our air conditioning. Uh, but I don't know that it should captivate us so much. Um, there are many places in the world that are a lot hotter and they're like this a lot more during the year, except our little spell. So um, we have a passage today that is so rich. You heard it being read, and I hope that it was preaching to you already before I have to utter a single word. Uh, it's, um, it's certainly not difficult to understand, um, but it's one that if we hear clearly what God was saying to the prophet, uh, by God's grace, will respond correctly to it. God has been, up to this point, especially the last few chapters, he's been teaching the people of Zechariah's generation how he was going to use them, move through them, and give them great power to establish themselves as a holy nation and to defeat all the enemies of God. Every enemy that comes against God, Christ, the Bible, his church. He says he's going to do this great work how they're going to overcome. And when we read this, if, if you are the type of person that reads the Bible without excluding yourself, and that's a good thing, you want to read the Bible with yourself in the story. If you're, if you're not that type of person, then when you read, you hear about God, as we saw last week, he's going to do this great thing of you know, his cup, God's cup is going to be poured out, sending the enemies reeling through the church. And we read how um, that people who come against the church are going to injure themselves on the immovable rock. And then the last verse, and uh, we looked at last week in verse 9 of chapter 12, it says, On that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. On the one hand, we hear that, and you're like, with great joy, you receive it and say, Yes, Lord, come, defeat your enemies, make things right, restore this broken place, overcome sin once and for all. And that's a right response. But if you're not reading yourself out of the storyline, there should be another response that's coupled with that. And that should be, what about me? Where am I in this equation? Am I I on your side, God? Am I fighting for you? Am I fighting for your son? Am I fighting for the gospel of grace? Or are you against me? Have I fooled myself into thinking because I was raised in the church and read my Bible and I come here on Sundays, have I fooled myself into thinking that I'm your friend when really I'm still your enemy? So on the one hand, we read this with great joy and we say, come, Lord Jesus, come and bring the cup and do the great work 
And on the other hand, for me, there's a great pause saying, hmm, do I want you really to come? Because I can only say that if I know that I'm on his side. I can only say that if I know Christ is my savior. Otherwise, I'm asking for my own destruction. If I'm an enemy of God and I say, God, come and destroy your enemies, I'm saying, God, come and destroy me. I don't, I've never heard anybody pray that. I don't know why you would. And so, as sons and daughters redeemed by grace, we don't want to fool ourselves or fool others. In the chapters we looked at, God was talking about how he was going to come and destroy all the enemies that come against God on the outside. And the focus here turns to the inside. It comes inside the church. It comes inside every single person that professes Christ. And God does battle here with his greatest enemy. His greatest enemy is not a dictator and it's not a nation. God's greatest enemy is the human heart. And so what we see here is God battling against the human heart, not to destroy those that he will redeem, but to save them. So let's, let's turn our focus on these few chapters, few verses here, verses 10 through 14 in Zechariah chapter 12. And let's look at one thing, just one thing this morning. You say, well, you got four points on your, on your handout. I didn't say that the, there aren't sub-points, but on one thing. And that is, how does God, how does he win? How is he victorious over the human heart? I mean, the human heart is the greatest battlefield, right? It's the place where sin still rages against God. So what is God going to do? What did he say to the prophet Zechariah to reveal how he's going to do this great work in the heart and minds of his people. Four things I want to look at this morning. One, that God is going to conquer the human heart by cultivating us a godly sorrow. Now, I know that may sound strange for some of you and probably strange in the teachings of many of our churches in this area, but it's biblical, so we'll look at it. How he cultivates in us a godly sorrow. Number two, how he does it through a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Third, how he casts our eyes upon the crucified Christ and then fourth, how he moves us to faith and obedience. All right? So let's take a look at the first. How he cultivates a godly sorrow in those that he chooses to redeem. Look at verse 10. Zechariah 12, 10. And I will pour out, God saying through the prophet, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. For 500 years, this prophecy sat pregnant, waiting to be fulfilled. Waiting. I imagine that many, when they first heard it, thought, what, what is this piercing? Who's going to be pierced? God's talking about himself being pierced. How is that going to look? And then we read in, in the Gospel of John 19, listen. When the Roman soldiers came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, he had been crucified on a cross, they did not break his legs. The prophecy said it would not be broken. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. In the Gospel of Mark, the Roman centurion said, Surely this man was the Son of God. And then we get this final verse in John 19. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. They will look on the one they have pierced. Jesus Christ. There's no question in this prophecy that the one who is pierced is Christ on the cross. Most of you already knew that. A few weeks later in Acts chapter 2, when God pours out his spirit at Pentecost, the other part of the passage is fulfilled. 
Peter in speaking to the, those who had gathered to hear his teachings and delineating Christ and his crucifixions. crucifixion. He says, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? By God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he reveals to the people that the one that was pierced is Christ on the cross. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, he causes those who see this and understand it by his grace to to be cut themselves, to mourn and to grieve over what they have done. To weep bitterly, as the passage says, as one weeps over the death of a firstborn child. Now, this prophecy, in light of several of the others that we had, I mean, there's nothing cryptic about this. This isn't even a hard prophecy to understand. I mean, I mean, we, had, we were talking before about flying scrolls and sorrel horses, right? And myrtle trees and levitating baskets, right? Some of that stuff is hard. This is not hard. In fact... The question isn't, what is God talking about? We know what he's talking about. He's talking about the crucifixion and death of his son, and he's talking about the right mourning in response to sin and what caused that. The question we ought to be asking is, to whom is he referring? Who will be mourning over the crucified Christ? Who? And what does that mean? And how do we mourn properly over it? This passage was fulfilled when Christ was pierced on the cross. This passage was most certainly fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost when the people cried out, Brothers, what must we do? Realizing they had killed God. But I, I, I think we can argue this passage has been filled, fulfilled hundreds of thousands of times throughout the church age. And by God's grace, this passage is being fulfilled this very day in churches throughout the world as faithful pastors proclaim the gospel of grace and people are cut and they mourn and they're convicted over the sin that put him on that cross. This morning, by God's grace, that'll happen with us. It'll happen with me. This is not a cryptic passage, but it is so brutally honest that most of us don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear about this morning. We want to hear something happy. Tell us something nice. Give us something to leave here going, yay, and no, no mourning, no conviction, no sin, no Christ. For those of you who were here with us back in December when we started our journey in Zechariah, God laid a foundation in Zechariah chapter 1, verse verse 3, And he he tells the people, and it's this resonating teaching throughout the entire book. He says, return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I'll return to you. And that's how he starts the book. Calling people to return to him. For those of you who recall our Lord's first teachings in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, 500 years after the prophecy of Zechariah, Jesus went and he said what? Repent. Turn to God. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn to God. Turn away from sin, turn away from the world, turn away from your flesh, and turn to the living God. Submit to Him, worship Him, honor Him, love Him. And you'd say, yeah, that makes sense. God's revealed that to me, but how? I mean, how does that happen? How does anyone turn away from the world and to God? The answer is here. The heart must be broken. The heart must be convicted at a very deep place. In order for anyone to turn to God, away from sin, and turn to living God, they must mourn. 
They must weep. They must wail. They must see their sins in light of a holy God. And they must see their sins that were placed upon the Lord's back. And they must see their sins that put Christ on the cross. Mourning is an absolute necessary precondition of salvation. Look at verse 10. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, Jesus Christ, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. If there isn't a deep mourning over our sin, if there isn't a mourning over what we did to Christ on the cross, if you've never mourned in your Christian faith or your life in the church, then it's arguable that you've never known Christ, you've never met the Savior. Because this is one of the first movements that he brings. He, through the Spirit of Christ, he shows God is holy and he shows the depth of our sin as we saw in Romans this morning that our sin becomes utterly sinful and we see Christ and we go, <gasps> and we're terrified at what we've done. We've killed Christ. <clears throat> if that has not been part of your movement, of your faith, then it's all religious, it's all external. Our church gatherings, apart from mourning over our sin, first, your Bible readings, your prayer time, your fellowshipping, apart from this, is pure religion. Even the gospel will change if mourning does not have its proper place. The gospel of grace given to us in the Bible will change if recognition of a holy God and sinful man and the piercing of Christ on the cross, if that is not there first, then the gospel will change to what? It'll go from the proclamation of God's holiness and the depth of sin and the need to repent and the need to believe. It will change from that, which is the true gospel, to Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It'll change from sin and repentance and salvation in Christ alone to if you receive Christ, he will bless you. He will give you many things. He will give you a good life now and he'll give you a good life in the future. And then we tell people to pray things like, you know, pray to, to receive Jesus into your heart. Mourning must come first. That's why that message is so hard. We don't want to tell the non-believer on the street, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's an easy, we want to say that. We don't want to say, mourn over your sin. See Christ. See what you've done. That's a much harder message. And when you share that, people will get angry. They will turn away. This partial gospel absent the mourning, absent the sin, absent the turning, absent true repentance, has filled our churches today. They're filled with people who have never mourned. But if you haven't mourned your sin, how can you repent? And if you haven't repented, how can you believe? And if you haven't believed, then you're not saved. If you're not saved, what are you doing in church? What are we doing, gathering, if we haven't mourned? We can go through the religious motions of Christianity our entire life. Church, Bible, prayer, ministry. And miss him altogether. If the heart does not change, 
starting with the morning of our sin, then we are enemies of God and when we read of the destruction, it's against us. David said in the 51st Psalm, David said, you do not of God, he said, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Listen with all your might, saints. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. And that means we can't have an intellectual assent to our faith. We can't say, well, of course God is holy, he must be. And of course we're sinners, we must be. And of course we need to repent and believe, we must. And of course Christ was crucified. Of course this makes, all, this makes sense. We can't just intellectually move there. And we can't just have this emotional response. I imagine if I press this hard enough, I can make some of you cry. But that doesn't mean that you're mourning over your sin. Having an emotional response to, I mean, just dialoguing about Christ being crucified should cause you to be somewhat disturbed. Just the death itself is disturbing. There must be mourning. A broken and contrite heart that God will not despise. Forever changes someone. You cannot encounter the living God by the spirit of Christ. Seeing a crucified Christ in the depth of your sin. And not have your heart utterly broken. And God will not despise that. God will not turn that away. Instead, he will cause you to repent and he will cause you to believe and he will give you great faith. You say, well, I mean, how, how deep does the morning have to be? I mean, I've been convicted a few times over some of the sermons and, then, uh, and I feel somewhat bad over my sin. I mean, you know, I, I don't think he should have been crucified. How deep does it have to go? Zechariah gives us the answer. He gives us two examples, actually. Did you notice that in the reading? What does this broken and contrite heart look like? First example, he compares this grief at a personal level, an intimate level, to the mourning of parents who lose their only child. Look at verse 10. They shall mourn, how? They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Hmm. I know from personal experience, as many of you do, how that feels. It is a pain that doesn't ever go away. It is as deep as it gets. In the context here, the only child, that means that they have no more children. No one to carry on the family name. In the firstborn, the firstborn is to receive the blessing. No one to pass the blessing to. It was a, it was a Hebrew idiom to describe the deepest grief possible. The loss of a firstborn or an only child. So how deep should our mourning and grief be over our sin? How deep should our mourning be over a crucified Christ? Deeper than the loss of a child. He gives another example, which I, in rendering this, I'm going to teach it because it's in the text, but I imagine it's hard for us. He, he, he goes from the personal level to the national level. And he says, it sh our mourning should be deep as, as a country that loses a godly leader. Now, for those of you who are old enough, you, I'm not saying President Kennedy was godly, but I, I remember seeing the, the tapes on the mourning of the nation. So even the mourning over not so godly a leader takes place amongst the people. Look at verse 11. The prophet says, on that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. Probably the most cryptic part of our prophecy here in this passage. And he's talking about King Josiah. And for those of you who know your 
your Old Testament history, King Josiah was the last king, the last godly king Judah had before they fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. He was their last hope of a leader who was calling the people to submit to God and repent of their sins so they weren't utterly destroyed. He died in the plains of Megiddo. He died. And then some years later, Judah fell. In fact, we have this in 2 Chronicles chapter 35. The national grief was such, it says in the Bible, that all of Judah and all Jerusalem mourned for him, for King Josiah. And the prophet Jeremiah composed laments for Josiah. And, and when the Chronicles was being written, it says, And to this day all the men and women singers commemorate Josiah in the laments. In other words, God is saying to the prophet Zechariah, your mourning over your sin and your mourning over killing Christ on the cross should be as deep at a personal level as if you lost a child, an only child, a firstborn child. It should be as deep at a national level, at a corporate level, if you lost a godly leader. But I want you to notice it also reveals a universal and personal scope unmatched. Look at verses 12 and following. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and the wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. What, what salient words do you hear repeated 11 times in three verses? By themselves, by itself, by themselves, by itself. Why? I mean, it's so, anytime you see that, a lot in the Hebrew, but even in the Greek, that repetition, say, what is the, what is the point? What is, the, what is God trying to communicate through the prophet to us? First of all, this is a, this is a I don't want to use the word universal, a, a communal mourning. All the people of God will mourn. And he, and he reveals this through, it'll be through the royal office, King David and his descendants, the house of Nathan. It'll be through the, the spiritual office of priest, family of Levi and the descendants and all his descendants through the Shimeites. And then it says in verse 14, and all the families that are left, which would include everybody, and they and their wives will mourn. And so you have this, this universal application that every single person who professes Christ will mourn, without exception, in the body of Christ. But it's not just this gathering and we hear the teaching and we mourn together, that we sing a lament and we mourn. The reason that he says by, the reason he says again and again and again, by themselves, by itself, 11 times, is because the condition is applicable to every single individual. It is a national mourning. It's a communal mourning. But that communal mourning is made up of each individual who is mourning. And that means what? That means, and the text reveals this, that wives cannot mourn vicariously through their husbands. Wives must mourn themselves over their sin and the crucifixion of Christ. Husbands cannot mourn vicariously through their wives. Children cannot through their parents. Churches cannot through their pastors. We must individually mourn our sin the depth of it, the magnitude of it, the destruction of it. 
We must individually, if we are to repent and believe and follow Christ, we must individually mourn the fact that it was our sins that put Christ upon the cross. It was our doing that pierced him through. It is universal and it is individual. It's why movements like uh, under Constantine, when Constantine converted to Christianity, he had the entire empire baptized by pain of death. So people were baptized and they made professions of faith. And the only thing they were mourning is that they had to be baptized. That's not biblical mourning. And how many kings and queens subsequently did the exact same thing? You say, well, I'm glad we're not there anymore. No, we do the same thing here. We have these large gatherings. I'll name a couple. And don't get all bent out of shape. But when, if you've ever been to a promise keepers convention, you have these massive movements at the end of the service, if you can call it such. And people go down. And there's this quasi-repentance. And there's this joy. And there's this jubilation. But there's never any discussion of sin. There's never dialogue of repentance. There's no mourning. I've shared with you before, two men sat in front of me and they came back after supposedly professing Christ and they high-fived each other and said, we know Jesus. Weep, mourn, mourn and wail is the way to the cross. How many Billy Graham crusades have rendered individuals making professions that are not real professions? How many? Billy Graham himself said, of the crusades over the years, of the hundreds of thousands of people who have made professions, one to three percent were real. Why? No mourning. No mourning. You can't make a profession unless there's mourning first. But that means for us, that means for you and for me, that I cannot have someone mourn on my behalf. My children cannot see me weep over my sin and ride upon my mourning coattails. You cannot come under your parents or come alongside a wife or a husband. You, if you are to repent and believe and follow Christ, you must mourn. You must mourn. So the first thing we see, you say, is that your first point? It is my first point. God moves to cause his people to mourn. He causes his people to mourn. And the question should be, well, how? I mean, how, how does this happen? How do I get there? Point number two, he does this great work through his spirit. Look at verse 10 again. He tells us in verse 10, I will pour out. <laughs> pour out. You get the imagery. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will pour out upon the church. I'll pour out upon my people a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. It is a necessary precondition of salvation. It is a necessary precondition of repentance. And it's not one that you can conjure up. You can't work yourself into a mourning frenzy. Oh, I'm going to mourn more. You can't do it. You can't do it on your own. It is not a work of the flesh. It is something that the Spirit of God must do in you. And what I find so amazing in studying this and contemplating it, it is such a radical gift. Mourning that comes by the Spirit of Christ to see our sins as utterly sinful, to grieve deeply over a crucified Savior is a gift from God. Now, some of you may find that odd. 
Some of you may say, I've never ever thought that mourning would ever be considered a gift. I've never ever on any birthday or any Christmas said, what, when someone says, what do you want? Say, Give me a big box of mourning, please, and wrap it up. And yet we know because this morning, a spiritual morning com- that comes from God, we know that morning leads to repentance. And we know that repentance leads to faith. And we know that faith leads to salvation and obedience in Christ. And therefore, it is one of the greatest gifts you can receive. And if you haven't received it, then pray to God to give you the spirit of mourning that you might mourn deeply this day. With great urgency. If you mourn simply over a guilty conscience, if you mourn because you don't like the consequences of your sin, those oftentimes will lead to counterfeit repentance. I imagine what Billy Graham observed of the 97% were people making a counterfeit profession because they mourned over the fact that there were consequences for their sin. They mourned over the fact they had some guilt they couldn't, didn't know what to deal with. There wasn't a movement of God. Charles Spurgeon said it best. He said, genuine mourning for sin comes as a gift of divine grace. Genuine mourning over our sin, genuine mourning over your sin, comes as a gift of divine grace, straight from the hand of God. I mean, that's what he said, right? He pours out his spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So what happens? I mean, what actually happens? The crime is revealed. The depth of the sin is revealed. No longer can you say, yes, I have lied. Yes, I have stolen. Yes, I've committed adultery. Yes, I've murdered. Yes. No longer is it just the yes. It is the utterly terrifying realization that every moment of your life before Christ, every fiber of your being was fully engaged in sin and you loved it. And you loved it. This divine grace comes and it shows us that hell, the best description in the Bible, is actually better than what we rightly deserve. This grace that comes doesn't just give us a sense of guilt. It opens up our consciousness to the holiness of God and the depth of our sin. If this happened to you, you know exactly of what I speak. I remember it like yesterday, and it was 27 years ago. I remember that moment that it, it finally made sense that God is holy, and I've sinned against him again and again and again. And that overwhelming sense of fear. But the grace continues in this revelation, and it reveals not just the sin, but it reveals that that sin killed Christ. I mean, it's bad enough to know that God is holy and that I'm a sinner. But how much more do I mourn when I see that God is holy and my sins killed God? How much deeper does that mourning become when I look upon a crucified Christ and I see him on that cross and I realize it's because of me and because of you that he's there? This is a great work of the Spirit of God that He pours out on us. And it leads to us pleading for mercy. Please for mercy. And that's how you know. 
You say, well, how do I know if it's if mourning that it's just me manipulating myself emotionally because I'm pretty good at that. I can get myself into a frenzy pretty quickly. Or how do I know it's spiritual mourning? Because spiritual mourning is always followed by prayer. Always followed by prayer. And the prayer is, forgive me, oh God. Have mercy on me, oh God. That's the prayer. It's not fancy. It may even be just, help me, Lord. Oh, what a wretch I am. Simply mourning over the consequences of our sin. I mean, no one likes getting caught. No one likes struggling with the consequences of sin, right? That's not the spiritual mourning of which God is talking about to the prophet Zechariah. Simply mourning or or feeling a sense of despair or self-pity, that's not biblical mourning either. In fact, those end catastrophically. Do you remember when Moses kept going back to Pharaoh and he kept saying to Pharaoh, let let God's people go out into the desert to worship the living God? And Pharaoh kept saying, no, 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 no. But after, you know, the first few plagues, Pharaoh started to mourn. But he wasn't mourning over his sin. He was mourning over the consequences of rebelling against God. And so what does he do? Does he pray? No. Listen to what he does. Exodus chapter 8, he says to Moses, you pray to the Lord to take away these plagues. He doesn't pray. He says, Moses, go pray to God and tell him to stop this. We don't like, we don't like the bloody rivers and we don't like the frogs and we don't like the gnats and we don't like the locusts. We don't like this. It doesn't lead to, lead to prayer. No greater testimony in all of sacred scripture than our, our, uh, our disciple who went astray, Judas. When Judas, according to Matthew chapter 27... When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins. Remember remember that from two weeks ago? The 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, Judas said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. The elders said, what is that to us? That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then he went away and he hanged himself. He committed suicide. That's not spiritual mourning. Self-pity, despair, grieving over the consequences of our sin and not the sin itself, that's not spiritual mourning. True mourning is a product of the Spirit of God revealing to us the magnitude of our sin in light of His holiness in a crucified Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, listen closely, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Judas had a worldly sorrow. And it led to his own suicide. So a mourning produced by the spirit. Leads to not suicide. Not despair. It leads to repentance. It leads to prayer. It leads to faith. It leads to strength. That's what I love so much about it. When you mourn rightly in Christ. You repent of that. You turn from it. You cry out for mercy. And then you hear God say, I forgive you. And you become bold and courageous in his strength. So first we see that God is the one who cultivates a godly sorrow over our sin, over the piercing of his son. And we see that he does this through the spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. But some of you are still saying, I I still don't know how that works. It's God's movement, I got that. It's true sorrow, I got that. It's over my sin. It's over the killing of Christ, I got that. But how? 
Don't you love the Bible gives you all the answers? I love it. You, you don't have to leave with not knowing if you want to hear what Christ has to say. What is the catalyst? I mean, this is the, what is the catalyst that triggers the morning? What takes the heart that's so hardened? As God said through the prophet Zechariah, that's diamond hard and changes it from stone to flesh. What? What could ever do that? Point number three, God, by his grace, takes our eyes and he casts us upon his son. We look upon the crucified Christ. It's not just God's holiness that brings about this morning. It's not just the depth of your sin. It is the grievous truth that mankind, those created by God in his image, killed God. They killed the Savior. God's one and only Son. The Bible calls him the Holy One of Israel, the darling of heaven, the Prince of Peace, the lover of our souls. This is the one whom we pierced. And not the Romans, and not those mean Jews so long ago. Every sinner that's saved by God's grace pierced that man. That means me, and that means you. And that means all who repent and believe and make that profession of faith. We nailed him to the cross. Don't write yourself out of that story. Don't say bad Romans and bad Jews. That's us. Look at verse 10. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Now you can't read that without going, hmm, what, wait, me, him, me, him. We got some issues here. You know what that is? I mean, you know what we're teaching to here in the Old Testament, what is being taught to? Say it for me. What's being taught to? The Trinity, right? I mean, the Trinity is being taught to in the Old Testament. And in this particular case, we have the Father and the Son being revealed. Otherwise, how can you read this? God's talking. He says, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Meaning what? Meaning that God is one and eternally distinct persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's fantastic. I mean, it really is. Try to argue this one out. Try to do this without the Trinity, and you will fail in your exegesis of this verse. God is saying, so of Christ, they're going to look upon me, and then of him, the Father and the Son, one and yet eternally distinct. Revealing two persons of this three-person Godhead. Father, Son, and of course we know the Holy Spirit. But what is it about Jesus' being pierced? What is it about Christ on the cross that would cause you to mourn? Outside of the blood and the nails and the, the instrument of death, which we go, oh. I mean, in our culture, right, we, most of us have never even seen an animal killed. Or Outside of all the gore, what would trigger the mourning? What is the catalyst to move us from being okay with it to grieving deeply over it. Why would the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth, say this? When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why did the Apostle Paul ever say that? Because he knew 
that if he could teach too, and if God would, by the spirit of grace, reveal Christ upon the cross, he knew there'd be right mourning. He knew that would, that, would, that would culminate in a cry for mercy. He knew that God would cause repentance. And so he said, I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I love that passage. It struck me in seminary and I thought, then what must we know? Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if that is not a part of our daily faith, and if it's not a part of our teaching regularly in the church, a crucified Christ, then what are we talking about? The Apostle Paul says, I resolved to know nothing but this when I was with you. And he's talking to the church at Corinth. May God forbid if we ever cease to look to a crucified Christ. By God's grace, when we look upon Jesus on the cross, we see the greatest crime ever committed. Why? Why? You say, well, we know that. We're Christians. Why? Because this is the only man who was truly innocent. It's the greatest crime ever committed because he's the only person that was ever truly innocent, right? I mean, even if we were accused falsely of a crime and sentenced for it, you would say to yourself, yeah, but you know, I really kind of do deserve it. I mean, honestly, if I were sentenced, if I were accused of murdering someone and I were sentenced and sent to jail and someone said, did you ever commit murder? I said, well, not that murder, but I've murdered millions of times in my mind. Not Christ. It was the greatest crime in human history because he is the only innocent man to have ever lived. I mean, purely innocent. This man never had a thought that was wrong. This man never uttered a word that was not in complete obedience to the living God, his father. This man never moved his hands or his feet in any way contrary to the will of God. He was sinless. And therefore, his crucifixion, his death, is the most grievous act in all of human history, bar none. Nothing comes close. Nothing comes close. He was innocent. So innocent. So pure. So utterly sinless. The Bible says that angels who have not fallen, when they look upon him, angels, sinless angels have to cover their face when they gaze upon the innocent, pure, sinless beauty of Christ. And yet what did we do? We killed him. So pure and so innocent that this man humbled himself, taking the form of a servant and become, you know, became obedient even to the point of death on a Roman cross. So innocent, so pure. And what did we do with this innocence? What did we do? We looked last week, we liked him at first. We, we liked the food, we liked the raising of the dead, we liked the healing of our bodies. But we don't like the pure innocence because it magnifies our sin. And so we, we, we nailed him, we pierced him, we put him on a tree. And then what does he say upon the cross? What should he have said if he were a fallen man? He said, I'll get you. I'll get you. He doesn't even say to the Father, Father, get them for what they're doing to me. What does he say? He says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Who says that? Who says that in light of such utter wickedness? Only the innocent one. Only the pure one would utter those words, forgive them. If you hear that, you must grieve. If you gaze upon a crucified Christ 
and you know it's your sins that put him there, and you hear him say to you, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, you must grieve. But it's not just his innocence that we should mourn over. It is the depth of the suffering. Before I came to a saving grace in Christ, before I knew what this meant, I attended Easter services. Because that's what people do in this country, right? Easter and Christmas, twice a year and you're all right. And I would go to these Easter services and I was taken you know, by parents or family friends and they would talk about the crucifixion of Christ. I mean, horrific, right? I mean, it's horrific. He's unjustly arrested, he's unjustly accused, he's unjustly tried, and he's unjustly found guilty. That's all bad. But then he's taken, right? He's taken, by, he's taken before Herod, he's taken before... Uh, um, before Pilate, and then he's, and he's beaten, and he's spit on, and they, they tear out his beard, and they put a, a crown of thorns upon his head, and they beat him, you know, to the point of death, and then they, they lead him off to the cross. The most humbling road in that time was to, to carry your cross, and then they, they nail him to the tree, and, and he dies this wicked death. And I remember thinking in my unregenerate state, is that it? Is that it? I mean, that's bad. It's all bad. But is that it? Because that cannot be it. Because I remember thinking when I was a little bit older, wait a minute. If the punishment for my sins is hell, then that cross thing was not sufficient. If my rebellion against the living God is an eternity in hell, then him being whipped and beaten and crucified is not sufficient. The physical is horrific. And I pray we have a visual of that that causes you to mourn. But something else happened on that cross. And if you've been here more than a month, you know what it is. On that cross, Jesus Christ took the punishment that we rightly deserved. And that wasn't crucifixion. And it wasn't beatings. And it wasn't being pierced. It was hell. Jesus Christ took hell. And what amazes me, if I am saved, then he took my hell. And if Melissa's saved, he took Melissa's hell. And he took the hell for every single person that's going to be redeemed. That's, that thought, my brain stops. I still can't get it. But that's what the Bible says. That on the cross, he cried out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The most grievous, pain-filled words ever uttered by any man. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? New Living Translation. My God, my God, why have you cast me into hell? Why have you separated yourself from me? Jesus Christ received the spiritual punishment that we rightly deserved. Now legally, what does that mean? That means that the punishment... I'll use myself. The punishment that I rightly deserve for every sin that I have committed and will commit, Christ took. The full punishment. So whatever hell I deserved by the living God for eternity, for me, Christ took that upon himself. He received it in full, right? When he said it is finished, in full. And if you know Christ, he did that for you. And for every person throughout human history that has professed their faith in Christ, he did that for them. That's what it means legally, but what does it mean relationally? Relationally, it means that the Father and the Son 
experience that eternal separation as well. And there are no words that I can... I tried writing something. It was all... It just sound, it sounded trite. There are no words to express, express the relational movement of an eternal father and an eternal son who have known each other and been known by each other for all eternity, who have loved each other for all eternity, who have glorified one another for all eternity. There's no words to express what that relational break must have been like for the Savior and for the Father and certainly for the Holy Spirit as well when they were ripped apart because of our sin. Any of you who have lost a loved one, you know that pain. That pain is so deep that you cry and you moan from the inside. How much more so an eternal father and an eternal son who had never known separation? How much more so? But upon the cross, in that moment, on that cross, all those who would be saved, Christ experienced that relational separation from the Father. Don't ask me how it works. My kids badger me on this one. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. I know that it happened. The Bible says that. I don't know how. I don't know how this time dimension works. I don't know how he experienced that eternity because it must be an eternity. It can't be short of that, right? If you have partial eternity in hell, that's much better than eternity. Part of the grievous nature of being punished in hell is that it never ends. So somehow Christ experienced that. I don't know how. Ask Pastor Todd or Pastor Kurt. They'll tell you. J.I. Packard writes this. I love the quote. Listen closely. He said, This physical pain, though great, was, not, was yet only a small part of the story. He's talking about the crucifixion. On the cross, Jesus lost all the good that he had before. All sense of his Father's presence and love. All sense of physical, mental, and spiritual well-being. All enjoyment of God and of created things, all ease and solace of friendship were taken from him and in their place was nothing but loneliness, pain and a killing sense of human malice and callousness and a horror of great spiritual darkness. And then he writes, Jesus' chief suffering were mental and spiritual and what was packed into less than 400 minutes was an eternity of agony. Agony such that each minute must, must, each minute was an eternity in itself. In gazing upon the crucified Christ and understanding that it's our sins that put him there, we have to mourn. I would go so far as to say that if the Spirit of God reveals this to you, you cannot not mourn. You cannot look at the innocent one. You cannot look at the darling of heaven. You cannot gaze upon a crucified Christ knowing your sin was the cause and not mourn. If there's no mourning, there's no life. If you cast your eyes on Christ, on the crucified Savior, then there's sorrow. And the goodness of that sorrow is that it leads to repentance and the goodness of that repentance is it leads to faith. And the goodness of that faith is it leads to obedience. It leads to following him. Not despair. Not guilt. So we've seen that God cultivates us in a, God, a godly sorrow in our hearts. 
We see that he does it by the power of the Holy Spirit. We see that he causes it to happen by causing us to look upon a crucified Christ. And lastly, last point, he does this in order to move us in faith and obedience to the one that we killed. If it weren't biblical, there'd be a great irony to all of it, right? Christ sends his son, we kill his son, and then he moves us to put our faith in the son. Fourth point. Look, verse 10 again. A lot of time in verse 10. It is a powerful, powerful verse. God said, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. God moves the sinner from rebellious enemy that is facing destruction to a sinner saved by grace destined for heaven. And it doesn't stop with the morning. I mean, this would be a, this would be a hard message. Say morning, and that's it. That's it. Go mourn. Go mourn and mourn and mourn. It doesn't stop there. Really, that's just the beginning of it all. This spiritual mourning which leads to repentance is consummated in a radical, courageous, obedient faith. A life of faith. And that's why believers are not walking around crying all the time. There are appropriate times to cry. There are appropriate times to mourn. But the mourning that leads to faith is a strong faith. The pleas for mercy that God gives you when you see your sin and you see the crucified Christ and you cry out, you cry out for mercy. And what do you say? Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for killing your son. What does he say? What does God say? I do. I forgive you completely. And we say, what? He says, I forgive you completely. That's why he died. When you cry out for mercy, I forgive you completely. And then when we receive that forgiveness, the grace, right? A spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. When we receive the grace, it's not just grace, it is power. The grace is power. Because he causes you to repent and he causes you to believe and he causes you to follow Christ. That's why Job 28, 28, easy number to remember. Job says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The mourning is the beginning of wisdom. The terror of the crime is the beginning of wisdom. And then he says to depart from evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But to depart from evil, that's when you know you really understand it. Why? Because you're changing from the inside out. You're following. You're listening. You're obeying. When you look upon the one pierced for your sins, and there's a legitimate spiritual mourning you are blessed because the next step is repentance and faith that turns you from evil you are blessed because that wisdom of seeing by God's grace what has transpired by his grace leads to repentance and faith and you living differently entirely differently can you say that entirely differently I said it so there it is But if the fear of the Lord is temporary, and here's the hard part, I think, for many of us, and certainly for the contemporary American church, if that fear is temporary or that grief dissipates quickly, 
If it doesn't move from a fear, which is the beginning of wisdom, to departing from evil, if you remain in your evil, if you remain in your disobedience, even if you go to church, even if you read your Bible, even if you pray, if there hasn't been a, a transformation of your heart and mind and you're not different and living differently and daily growing by the means of grace, in the grace of God, then the grave truth is that you've never really mourned and you've never really repented. And that means going back to the very beginning of the sermon, that all the things that we've heard in the last few chapters of God pouring out his cup and the church being an immovable rock and God destroying the enemies, that's us, that's you. I'm not convincing some of you. I can see by your faces. If mourning has not moved to repentance, if that repentance hasn't been turned into faith, if that faith is not visible by obedience to Christ, then you're still an enemy of God. I don't care what you call yourselves. You can, call, you can claim any title you want. Born again, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, Neo-Orthodox. You can go to church, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Baptist, you can have Bibles. You can have 10 Bibles. You can read them every day. You can give lots of money. You can feed the poor. You can get baptized once. You can get baptized twice and be an Anabaptist. None of that matters apart from Christ. None of it matters apart from mourning, repentance, and faith, and obedience. And oftentimes we get just the first three. We do the mourning, and we do the repentance, and we do the faith, but we don't obey, which means the whole thing's false. Jesus said, by this you will know if you love me, if you obey my commands. But the good news is that if by the working of the Holy Spirit you have looked upon Christ, you've seen the depth of your sin, and you've mourned deeply over it, and it has moved you to repentance, and it's moved you to faith, then you know, before I say it, your life's already radically different. You are born again. The old self has died. The new self was alive. And each day you battle for that new self to be more alive. Each day. That's a glorious hallelujah. That's a praise God because that's his work. In Numbers chapter 21. The Israelites had traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea. They were trying to get around Edom, remember? So they took the long route. But the people grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? They're talking to God and to Moses, his servant. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. The snakes bit the people and many Israelites died. The consequences for their sin. The people came to Moses and they said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray, asking Moses, pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. And anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. 
And so Moses made a bronze snake and he put it up on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. And you're thinking, what does this have to do with Zechariah 12? God's people are oppressed in Egypt. He sends a savior through Moses. He takes the people out of Egypt. He brings them into the desert. He's leading them to the promised land. They sin against him. They sin against the servant. They bring death upon themselves through poisonous snakes. They cry out for mercy. And God says to Moses, take a pole, make a snake, put it up. And those who look to the pole, those who look to that snake that's raised up will live. God gave him a mode of salvation through faith. He didn't say take a little bit of sand and water and mix it together and put it in the wounds. He didn't give a medical answer. He didn't start passing out pills. He said, put your faith in the snake in the pole and you'll live. And for those who submitted to God in faith that were bitten by the snakes, they lived. In the Gospel of John, we find our Lord making a most extraordinary statement about himself. Offering salvation to all those who should die. He offers salvation to them by calling all of us to look upon him and believe. Early in the Gospel of John, John chapter 3, remember this wonderful dialogue that Jesus is having with Nicodemus the Pharisee? He says to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Lifted up where? On the cross. Why? So that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Moses lifted up a pole with a snake on it, and all those who put their faith in God and looked upon that lived even though they should die. Jesus Christ says, anyone who looks to the Son, anyone who puts their faith in the Son, anyone who believes in the Son and trusts in the Son and the Son-saving work, even though we too have been bitten by the venomous poison of sin and death that runs through our veins, even though we too are to die, he says, you'll live. You'll live. Not by anything you do, but by looking to me, Christ says, you'll live. And this is the way of salvation for the sinner to look to the one that was lifted up on the pole, to look to the one that was crucified for our sins. And if you do, if you look to him and you believe, then you too will live. That is the good news. That is the great news. Many of us are sitting here and we don't even realize we've been bitten by poisonous snakes. Most of the people that in, in, our, in our, our, our workplace, in our neighborhoods, many of our family members, they're dying of a poisonous venom of sin and the destiny is death, the destiny is hell, and they don't even know it. And so a compelling question for us is, have we come to them with the serum? Have we come to them and said, listen, you're dying. Look to Christ. Your sins are killing you. Look to the one raised upon the pole. This being forgiven for our sins, being received as children of God, and having the promise of eternal life instead of death, cannot come 
by any other means than looking to, believing, and following the one that was lifted up. No other means. You can't work your way there. You can't do enough good works. You can't be that perfect wife or that perfect husband or that perfect son or daughter. You can't go to church enough. You can't read your Bible enough. You certainly can't tithe enough. You can't do any of those things. None of those things matter when it comes to salvation. You must look to the one lifted upon the pole and put your faith in him. You must follow him. And if you try, if you try to get in by any other means, by your good works, some of you are are resting upon the profession you made years ago. I made a profession of faith. Some of you will say, you baptized me. You know I'm saved. If you ride on anything other than looking to, believing, and following the one lifted up on the cross, then you will... I'll read to you the parable. Matthew chapter 22. The wedding banquet. Great preparation of the wedding banquet. The feast of the Lamb where God gathers his children in and we have a feast. And that feast is real, by the way. That feast is going to happen and there's going to be real food and it's going to be fantastic. And I can't wait to eat it. Real. But listen to what happens in this parable. When the king came in to see the guests at the wedding banquet, he comes in and he's looking around at all these people that have come in to celebrate the wedding feast of the Lamb of God. He looks around and he notices a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He doesn't have the robe of Christ. He hasn't been covered by the blood of the Lamb. Friend, he asked. This is God now. How did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Who knows how he got in? Maybe by his good works. Maybe by going to church. Maybe by reading his Bible. Maybe by selling Bibles. Maybe by giving Bibles. Who knows? He was speechless for he had no answer. And the king told the attendants. Listen to what he said. Tie him hand and foot. And throw him outside into the darkness. Where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Any other means, any other vehicle other than the Christ that was lifted up upon the cross that you try to enter heaven, to come into the presence of God, will end with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness, it will be hell. It will be hell for all eternity. But for those of you who do look to the crucified Savior, for those of you who see and understand that God's son was crucified by us and he was crucified for our sins and for those of you who cry out for mercy you'll be comforted Jesus said blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted it's not a perpetual state of mourning I mean I still mourn and we ought to when we're confessing our sins there should be deep mourning I grieve and I weep at times in my prayer over my sin, I grieve and I weep at times over the sin that I keep on doing. As Paul said, the very things that I don't want to do, these things I keep on doing. And I say, oh, what a wretched man am I? And I mourn and I ask for forgiveness. And then what does God do? He forgives me. He forgives me. As he does you every time. He brings me comfort. He brings me love. He draws me in. And he says, I know, son. I know. That's why Christ died. I know. 
I haven't lost you. I haven't forsaken you. I haven't let you go. I know. I know. If this morning is real, if this morning is real and it leads to repentance, and that repentance leads to faith, that faith will be one of radical obedience. Radical obedience. The Apostle Paul says this to the church at Colossae in Colossians chapter 3. Just listen. Paul says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Verse 5, he says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. He says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Paul says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now... Now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. He ends this section by saying, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. You want to know what the wedding outfit looks like? Clothe yourself with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, and with patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And all, over all of these virtues, he says, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. I love that. That's what mourning produces. Biblical mourning that leads to repentance, that leads to faith, leads to this life. Is that your life? Not perfectly, but is that your life? I mean, let's ask ourselves some rhetorical questions, then I'll close. A faith that sets its heart and mind on things above rather than things of this world. Your thoughts on a daily basis, there or here, Divine or fleshly? God or man? Eternal or temporal? What got you going all the time? Work? Finances? Physical health? What's the anxiety churning in you? This faith fixes the heart and mind on things above. It moves you to dwell upon and contemplate and meditate and then rejoice over the Savior. Over the love that the Savior has for you. Over the forgiveness that was given to you. Are you actively putting to death the fleshly nature of the old self? It's active. It's volitional. You have the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. Are you doing it? That's, that's a rhetorical, but answer it yourself. It's a yes or no. Are you identifying those sins that still wage inside? For those of you who came to a saving grace later in life, you know, boy, those things go deep. I spent 20 years of my life sowing seeds to sin that still grabbed me. 27 years later, I still have lyrics in my mind of songs that are utterly depraved. One or two notes, and they're there. 
behaviors and habits that you worked on hard? Are you working against them now? Are you mortifying them? This is what this faith does. This morning repentance faith does this. Is this faith faith changing you from the inside out? Would someone say of you in the last year, in the last two years, you are more compassionate? You're more kind. You're more humble. In fact, you were never humble. Now you are. You're more gentle. You're more patient. The fruit of the Spirit needs to be born in the life of those who profess to have Him. Is your faith enabling you to bear with one another? Because we're hard to bear with. Some of you right now are saying, I'm having trouble with you bearing, not stop talking, pastor. Bearing with one another. Do you have a love that covers a multitude of sins? Or are we so thin-skinned that if we get a sideways look, we, we just, we're reeling as though the cup of God's wrath was poured out on us? Are we that thin-skinned? Or are we bearing with one another and growing with one another? I know how hard I am to live with. Ask my wife. It's completely true. Ask my children. But by God's grace, they bear with me. This church life is not easy. For those of you who are in it and you're engaged in it, this is hard stuff. But are we bearing with one another? Or are we fleeing? Are we staying the course? Are we discipling one another? Are we letting our love for our brother and sister in Christ and our desire to disciple them supersede how annoying they might be? Real faith does. Real faith does. I'll close. You're mourning. You're grieving. You're wailing. You're pledging to God to be a better person if done on your own strength, fails every time. The power of hypersuggestion is a terrible trick born out of hell. You can't get yourself into a morning frenzy. You can't cause yourself to repent. It must be born of the Spirit of God. Until you look in faith upon the one who has been pierced for your sins, until you put all of your hope and all of your trust and all of your future, and all of your now, in the one that was raised up upon the pole. Until that happens, all this is for naught. And I say this in love, I have no idea what you're doing here. Until that happens, mourning that leads to repentance, that leads to faith, it's all for naught. And we will be the greatest of fools if we live this entire life professing Christ only to hear him say to us, depart from you, worker of iniquity. We'll be the greatest of fools. Much more so than those who are out in the world saying, I never believed in the first place. I fully expected hell. Do not remain an enemy of God. Do not find yourself counted amongst that number. Because he will come again in glory and he will pour out his wrath and it will be beyond, it will be beyond anything any author, including John Milton, would ever be able to describe. Beyond it. Do not be found there. Say, what do I do? What do I do? Repent. Mourn. Wail. Grieve. Repent. Believe and follow Christ. James said it better. 
He said, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Remember, return to me, God said, and I'll return to you. This morning, right now, saved or unsaved, hear God say to you, hear God say, come. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Everybody wants to be lifted up. No one can lift themselves up. God says, humble yourself before the Lord. And then the one who was lifted up upon the cross will lift you up with him. What great hope. What great hope in the midst of this teaching on the piercing and killing of God. We know what we deserve. We know what we deserve. And it's worse than hell. We know that. And by God's grace, he gives us heaven. He gives us his son. He gives us the one that we pierced. So that in the end, saints, and this is the most extraordinary part, and I'll pray, in the end, truly, all the glory and all the honor and all the power, both now and forever, will be given to Christ. All of it. And we will spend eternity glorifying and magnifying his name. And not one person will say, he's not worthy. Everybody will declare his glory. Hear the words that God has given to the prophet Zechariah so long ago. See your sin in light of a holy God. See that you have pierced the Holy One and repent properly. Let's pray. Father, forgive me. Forgive my brothers and sisters. For even this day, I could argue not mourning properly the sins that we have brought against you, our holy God. Forgive us as a church so that each of us mourns properly. Give us that clear vision of the crucified Christ. Take our eyes that are so fixed upon this world and cast them upon the sun. This morning, this hour, for my brothers and sisters and for your children throughout the world, cast our eyes upon Christ that we might see his broken body and his spilled blood and we might know that we put him there and that we might know that in the same breath that's not our end. Our end is not death. Our end is not destruction. But by your grace, you grant us life through his broken body. Enable us to see the greatest crime ever committed. Enable us to see, Lord, his pure innocence and his beauty. Give us the spirit of mourning and give us the spirit of repentance. Father, we ask because we cannot do this on our own. We ask that you do this great work in us. You, Lord, we ask to do it. And then raise 
in us, raise us collectively as a holy people. Purify our minds and purify our hearts. Make us into the people that you want us to be, Lord. Make us into the people that we already are in Christ. Not just individually, but as a body, as a church, as a local church here at Camden. I pray, Lord, knowing that we do not deserve it, that you would do that great work so that we live lives that bring you honor and glory. I praise you for this teaching. I praise you for the hope. I praise you for the power that you bring in your grace. In our mourning, Lord, comfort us as only you can through the Spirit of Christ. I pray these things in his holy, precious, powerful, and innocent name. Amen.